on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe you're our new listener here at 88.7. The Bible Line is a ministry where for one hour, as people uh, have questions as concerning their study of the Holy Scripture or an issue they're facing in their personal life and ministry and they want biblical counsel on, you can call us directly and you can dictate your question to our receptionist, Deb, or if you're more comfortable, you can go on the air live, or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. When you call, the number locally is 843-525-1859, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll begin this morning. Okay, we've got a number of questions we didn't get to last week, so let's uh, get to them. Joyce from Rankin writes, we have a son who's talking about going to Buckhead Church in Atlanta. Mm. I see online that this church's senior pastor is Andy Stanley. I've never listened to him, but I've heard some disturbing things about him. Our son also lives close to Michael Youssef's Church of the Apostles, I am planning on pointing him to this church. What are your thoughts about that church? I'd greatly appreciate any suggestions for a church in the Buckhead area. Well, I think your best alternative would be Dr. Michael Youssef, Church of the Apostles. He is actually just a great pastor. Uh, We air his broadcast here at WAGP. What time does Dr. Youssef come on right now, Rick? It is 1.30, I believe. 1.30 in the afternoon. So in either case, uh, he's a real solid Bible teacher. It's a healthy church. My son actually is on the elder board there. Uh, So, you know, I have no hesitations whatsoever. Uh, Andy Stanley, he's off the rails right now. Uh, He's doing all kinds of, saying all kinds of crazy things, uh, making all kinds of really foolish statements. I, I just don't know what's driving his ship. Uh, he's been confronted, too, by pastors across the country, uh, and he's somewhat, uh, I guess, uh, on the fence in terms of some really critical moral issues by practice. Uh, he's made statements about the authority of the Old Testament that are just terrible. Um, so there's so many, so many things that he has said uh, that needs to be discounted as false. So I would run a thousand miles an hour away from his church. You could Google Andy Stanley. Uh, You can read the quotes for yourself uh, and you will find out that he has said really some terrible things about the authority of God's word. And I don't know where he is going to end up. 
Uh, to me, the church, too, lacks a tremendous amount of discernment as to who they will allow into their pulpit and even to sing on a Sunday morning. Uh, Lauren Daigle, who just came out yesterday, she's a contemporary Christian artist. Uh, she did her debut at the Buckhead campus. And, uh, you know, she came out yesterday. She's not sure whether or not homosexuality is a sin and that she's not God and she can't make the judgment. Well, she doesn't have to make the judgment. God has already made it for us. And he hasn't stuttered. He's said very, very clearly what he thinks about this. But right now, at uh, some of the Buckhead Church and branches, um, they're baptizing homosexual people on a Sunday morning. And uh, the gay partner is watching the gay friend get baptized. And, you know, this whole idea that you can be uh, gay and as long as you're celibate, that's just nonsense. That's just pure nonsense. That's like me saying, well, you know, my heart is filled with adulterous feelings, but I'm not acting on them, so it's okay. So I'm an adulterous Christian, or I'm a murderous Christian. You know, I just, I hate people and want to take a gun and slaughter folks, and but, you know, I'm not acting on it, so that's all that matters. That's the rationale they're using. And God speaks of repentance, not just in terms of actions, but uh, the, the desires of the heart that are wrong, and those need to be brought under the power of the Holy Spirit as part of the sanctification process. So, you know, again, it's a popular church, one of the larger churches there in the uh, greater Atlanta area, uh, but it's a dangerous church, and his theology is dangerous. He went to Dallas Seminary. He, he left the year before I arrived. I'd been in ministry a number of years with Campus Crusade, uh, so he went right out of college to seminary. We're about the same age. Uh, his sister, Becky, who has stayed the course, as far as I know, uh, was in a Dallas seminary with me. Now my own seminary, Dallas seminary, is drifting. They're getting into all this. Uh, oh, well, I, I won't go there today. It's it, I, I'll never get off this soapbox. But don't go to that church. The Buckhead Church and its uh, campuses are, are not healthy. They're not healthy at all. And you can just Google that for yourself. Church of the Apostles, it's a great church. It's Anglican. They're not part of the Episcopal Church in America. Uh, They never have been. So they're part of the Anglican Communion. They do practice infant baptism, but they also do post-conversion baptism. So they have a lot of people they reach from that kind of uh, tradition uh, and nonetheless, you know, I would agree probably with 90% of what Michael Youssef preaches. Uh, he's a, um, Egyptian brother, uh, born and raised in Egypt, uh, converted to Christianity. His life is continually threatened by Muslims. He now has to have security 24 seven. In fact, had to sell his home. And I've spoken with Dr. Youssef on a number of different occasions and, had a delightful meeting with him about a year ago for about a half an hour in his office when I was in Atlanta. But he's a great brother, and um, certainly it would be a good church to encourage people to go to there in the greater Atlanta area. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Matthew from Oak Ridge, Tennessee writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I lived many years over a decade, unsure of my relationship and standing with the Lord. I have a friend who is now a minister who was saved over 10 years ago after listening to your message, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? He passed this along to me, and a couple of weeks back I watched it. It took almost three hours to get through it. 
I was looking everything up, writing everything down. I had prayed prayers many times, walked aisles. I've been baptized three times, but I never had assurance. I was whipped by addiction and my marriage was falling apart. My wife called the cops on me a few weeks prior. After watching your sermon, I believe in Christ. I understood and simply believed. And for the first time in a long time, I know that I belong to God. I am saved. I've also been sober for close to a month now. My wife and I have resolved to stay together, and there has been no arguing. I just wanted to say thank you for your preaching and clarity. My question is, what resources do you recommend to help me along in discipleship and learning how to read and study the Bible? I've been reading my Ryrie Study Bible in the New King James and NIV translations. Is there a particular Bible or translation you would suggest? And then as part of the next question from somebody else, they want to know what publication of the NASB do you use? Okay, so let me uh, let me respond to both those uh, issues. Uh, this is encouraging, uh, Mike from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, uh, to hear you share your testimony and how you came to know Christ as your Savior. Let me just say, if you've had, you know, an enslavement to alcohol, I don't even like to use the word addiction. I don't like the word addiction. It's too psychologized in our day. And so addictions are more, you know, easily written off and excusable. Uh, We must understand that, you know, sexual addictions, alcohol addictions, that we're talking about things that God says are evil and sinful. And so the fact that you've come to faith, you've taken the most important step of your life, because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. With that said, when someone comes from an alcohol background, depending on their enslavement to the alcohol, sometimes they need uh, some 24-7 accountability to kind of speed them down the road in terms of learning how to deal with the temptation in this area. Number one, you've got to be absolutely convinced in your mind that any use of alcohol is just wrong and evil. The reason people get addicted on alcohol is because it's addictive. And I'm not speaking just to someone who may be from an alcoholic or background, a drunkard background. And the, the term alcoholic in and of itself, you know, is a somewhat of a degenerative term because, well, you know, it's I've got this disease. It's not a disease. It's a sin. And that's why God says drunkards shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But we're living in a day where we've redefined the use of alcohol in evangelicalism. My own seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, has come out with a very detailed statement of why it's okay to use alcohol. Just don't get drunk. Well, where is that line? When are you buzzed? But it's much more black and white than they make it. I guess all the great scholars of Dallas Seminary Men like Norman Geisler, Stan Toussaint, Dwight Pentecost, John Walvert, who all, by the way, took the exact same position I've advocated ever before I went to Dallas Seminary. Nonetheless, I guess they were all just stupid, ignorant, fundamentalists, and just had no insight as to what the Scripture said. And yet, if the truth be told, be told virtually every um, person that you listen to uh, on this station, who were graduates of Dallas Seminary, whether it was Erwin Lutzer or whether it was David Jeremiah or Tony Evans or Chuck Swindoll, they all studied under those men and were taught under those men. So my point is, is that this is not some ignorant, 
naive point of view. The fact is, is that alcohol, as it's packaged today, is considered strong drink and forbidden by God. Though The exception is that you could give it to a dying man or you could mix it with water. And it was often mixed with water where you would have bladder problems before you had alcohol issues. Because the reason they would mix it with water is it would purify the water and it would make it safe to drink. We don't experience that tension in this part of the world. And so if you lived uh, even 100 years ago in some parts of the world, if you lived 20 years ago, if you go to some countries today, the water um, delivery system is so poor that if you drink the water straight and it's not boiled or you don't drink bottled water, you're going to get sick. And so what missionaries did even 100 years ago is they carried a wine pouch around their neck and they would continually squirt a little bit of wine into potentially contaminated water such that you didn't have to boil it, and the alcohol in the wine would kill the bacteria in the water, and it would make it safe to drink. Um, So we're not fighting that tension in the day that we live in. It's very foolish for Christians to use alcohol today. Number one, it has the appearance of evil. Why would I want to support an industry that is evil at its core? Look, all you have to do is watch a Budweiser ad and to see the sensuality that is all built around alcohol. And that's not by accident because alcohol and illicit sexual encounters go hand in hand. The book of Habakkuk tells us that. Woe to you who gives your neighbor to drink to make him drunk. So one, it has the appearance of evil. It doesn't glorify God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God and certainly can cause someone to stumble. That's reason enough to abstain. But the fact that it would be considered strong drink, and I'm not talking about the uh, distilled liquors that come a thousand years after the Bible is completed. I'm talking about just wine and beer. That's what they had during biblical times. And God said, don't use it unless you give it to a dying man. So I would encourage you, one, start with that conviction that I can't handle a beer. I can't handle a glass of wine ever. That's why you got addicted to begin with. Number two, some people need some deeper supervision. And I'm not saying that's true of you. I have led a lot of people from alcohol backgrounds, and I get them to go through the discovery class. And so that's going to be my first recommendation to you. It's 45 weeks long, about 30 of those weeks, and the critical things that would help you in your daily walk with God. Some of the apologetic questions are not there yet. A few of them are, but most of them are not just two of the 10 that we cover in the course, but all of the other foundational truths on how to walk consistently with God, that is online at searchthescriptures.org. And what you want to do is listen to the Back to Basics series. That will help you so much. And if you want the handouts, you can call us and we'll be happy to provide a set of handouts for you to study. The fact that you spent three hours going through a one-hour sermon tells me a lot about your heart and that you're eager to learn and to grow. So um, with that said, that's where I would start. And there's a lot of people who've come out of the kind of background that you've experienced, and they're able to um, take the principles of spiritual growth and, and be victorious over this. Some need more supervision, and there's two ministries I recommend. One is Elam Home, Jerry Falwell's ministry. While he was alive, it continues on long after his death. Uh, it's in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's 60 days long. And then there's one called Hebron Home. I'm talking about just male ministries now. 
and that's in Boone, North Carolina. It's 90 days long, and again, you go there for 90 days or 60 days if you're in Lynchburg, and you are studying the Bible, you are learning the biblical principles on how to stay clean. I remember uh, leading a, a young man to Christ, and he was in his early 20s, and he told me, Pastor Carl, as far as I know, I've been drunk every day since I was six. I said, six years old. He said, my dad used to give me wine and, and whiskey starting at the age of six. You talk about child abuse. Anyway, um, I sent him. I led him to Christ by God's grace. He went to Elam home, was there for 60 days, came back clean, was victorious for about a year, fell again. I sent him back to Elam home with some more pointed steps when he came back. So, for instance, Jeff could not go into the bylaw alone to buy his groceries because where he needed the milk and eggs was the beer aisle, and it was too gripping a temptation for him to even go down that aisle. So he took those steps where you make no provision for the flesh in regards to its loss, and it may be different for you than for someone else, but you take those steps in order to stay clean. Matt, thanks for sharing your testimony. Why don't you do this? Since you say this pastor came to Christ listening to the same message, have him call me, and I will dialogue with him because you will need a pastoral recommendation. But two, I want to make sure that he's going to give you the accountability that you need as a new growing Christian. Let's go to the next caller. I think they've been waiting. Okay, we he's had the question about the Ryrene. Oh, yeah. NAS. So, do you want to hit yeah, that after so, we do the, do the live? Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay, uh, we do have a live caller. Let me push the button here. Hang tight. And good morning. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. Well, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Um, my question is, you know the Bible says that, also Paul said, if you be teaching on the gospel, um, which I would taught you, let them be cursed and damned uh, or anathema. Yes. So if a, if a Pentecostal preacher start teaching uh, heresy uh, and in the gospel, and you expose it, but the congregation will defend him or the organization will defend him. What, what, so I can say, well, let them be your curse and damned. So the whole congregation, the pastor, and the organization will defend him. Now, if they claim to believe a person can lose their salvation, and if they really believe that, if I say that to them, okay, since you really believe you can lose it, and you teaching a heresy, so the moment you sin, that's it, you're done for, no matter how much you cry, repent, and plead unto God, that's it, you had it. You know, once you, it's gone forever, your salvation, but if that was so, that means that that means the, the the whole congregation has to leave, but he won't. That that won't happen because he that has to rely on his the congregation to support his ministry. So if they claim to believe that, that means they that they wouldn't. Uh, he has to compromise his belief system to prevent his congregation from leaving. So so now if I know y'all, y'all believe in internal security and I believe in internal security. So how would that apply? If if the person teaches heresy, uh, not a gospel, and we let me curse and damn, so can that person still remain be secure? If it was if it was a Baptist situation, or all right, let me see if you let me see if I can respond to your yeah. Let me respond to your question a lot there, and it's a good question. Let me first deal with the text that you are referencing. It's found in paul's letter to the galatians and the galatians had had some false teachers who had come into the church 
had perverted the gospel. They were Judaizers, and they basically said to become a Christian, you had to go through the vestibule of Judaism. A Gentile would first have to become a Jew via the outward sign of circumcision before he could believe in Christ. And Paul basically tears that whole argument apart. He says that to teach that, you're you're basically adding a a work to the gospel before you can believe, which uh, basically cancels out the sufficiency of grace alone to save us. And so in Galatians chapter 2, he says, we, speaking of himself and the other apostles, are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So we're Jews by birth, which means they would have been circumcised. We're Jewish sinners. We're not Gentile sinners, so to speak. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, not saved, not declared righteous by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For what reason? Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So he's very definitive here that though he had been circumcised, he put no confidence in his circumcision he saw that just being a member of the covenant people of Israel did not disclude him from the same need that a Gentile has, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for salvation. And so Paul will conclude this paragraph in Galatians 2 by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, if you can become right in God's sight by anything that you do, I don't care if it's one thing on your list like baptism, which the Church of Christ typically advocates in some of the disciples of Christ and some of the Christian church denominations, or it's a hundred things on your list, to say you have to do something in addition to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ is to nullify, it's to make meaningless the grace of God. Righteousness doesn't come on that basis and to advocate that you can do anything to achieve a righteous standing, no, no matter how small it may be, confirmation, baptism, church membership, is to basically say that Christ died needlessly, he died in vain, that what he did was not sufficient. And then you're coming to God on the basis of human goodness, and you're not really, truly, genuinely changing your mind about sin. So these Galatians were influenced not by believing a different gospel, but because they allowed these false teachers to come into the church, it affected the sanctification process in their life. And that's really what Galatians is doing with the implications these false teachers had on people who had already believed salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Um, And so in Galatians 1, he said, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. They were deserting God, in essence, because we're saved by grace. And he said, I'm amazed, I'm I'm bewildered, I'm stunned that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, for a heteros gospel. There's two words uh, for another in the Bible, which is really not another, but uh, there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, 
let him be accursed. In the Greek word, if you were using the NASB, when there's a significant rendering of the Greek, they usually note it in the margin, and they do in this case, let him be anathema. And as we've said before, so I say again now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, he is to be accursed. Now, a person technically could teach that you can lose your salvation and not come under the anathema of Galatians 1. In other words, there are some Christians who teach assurance of salvation, but they deny eternal security. That is, they say, I know right now I'm saved, on what basis? By grace alone, through faith alone, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and they would define the gospel as the Bible does as the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so they teach assurance of salvation while denying eternal security. That is, I know this second I'm saved, not on anything I've done, but on the grace of God alone. I just don't know that five years from now that I couldn't reject Christ and deny him and follow Buddha. It's an experiential theology. It's not a biblical theology. But technically, you could believe that and be counted as a true Christian, and you certainly would not come, come under Paul's anathema. But what in practice happens in a lot of churches that deny the doctrine of eternal security is they very often are teaching a gospel that has been diluted through works. And so they would say, well, Christ is our Savior, but somehow you have to keep your salvation by your own merit. And that is really no different than the Galatian error that was on the other end. It was on the front end. It's just on the back end. And what people often in those churches hear is that if a person has to do something to earn their salvation— or a person has to do something to keep their salvation, then it becomes a works righteousness. If you can lose it, then what causes you to lose it? Now, in some realms, like if you go into Eastern Europe and the church is there, they would say the only thing that could cause you to lose it would be a denial of Jesus, a rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, That's a mild form of Arminianism. In other churches, and very often true in Pentecostal churches here in the United States, it's some sin that you've committed. Usually the pastor himself hasn't done it. He'll preach all against it, but he hadn't done it. But some sin that you've committed that could cause you to lose your salvation. So you have to repent all over again and be born again again. And it's just a vicious cycle. And again, people often uh, in those churches have no assurance of salvation Uh, They are very confused on how a person is saved. Usually if a person comes from an Assemblies of God church or or a Pentecostal church, whatever stripe, there's about a 50-50 chance that they even know what the gospel is. That's been my experience. And I've, you know, shared the gospel every week with people. But again, even the idea that denying Christ could cause you to sever your salvation— That's a sin, so to speak, that a true believer would never commit. John tells us that. Children, he says, we're in the last hour. We've been in the last hour, the Bible teaches, since the day of Pentecost, meaning that the imminent return of Christ could happen at any moment. And God promised uh, in a number of places, Peter preaches the same thing, that there would be false teachers from the inception of the church. They are against Christ. They are anti-Christ. Children, it is the last hour, and just you've, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. That's the one world leader that we've been studying in our exposition of the book of Revelation. 
Even now, many antichrists, plural, have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour, because this is what God said would happen. In the uh, kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13, and they're uh, strategically located in Matthew's argument of his gospel, because in Matthew 12, you have the religious leaders of Israel who, in essence, reject Jesus formally. And Jesus said to assume and to embrace their error is to commit an unforgivable sin. And so they had rejected the testimony of God the Father that had been laid out through the Old Testament, uh, through the prophets. They rejected the testimony of God the Son, which was that he is Messiah, that I am Lord. To see me is to see the Father. And there was only one person left that they could potentially reject his testimony, and that was God the Holy Spirit. And they basically said, the miracles you're doing, we can't deny the legitimacy of them. We can see them, they're black and white right in front of our eyes, but you're not doing them by God's power, you're doing them by the devil's power. And Jesus goes on to show them how illogical such a conclusion would be and how damning such a conclusion could be. But here's the point, is that in Matthew 13, the chapter that follows, if the kingdom promised to Israel is not going to become because of their official rejection of him in that first century, then what's the status of the kingdom? And that's what Matthew chapter 13 answers. We call it the kingdom parables. And Jesus basically shows what is going to happen during the the church age. That's the age that we're in right now. Uh, God is largely working through Gentiles who are preaching the gospel around the world. And, um, and among those parables that he tells, he, he tells a parable of tares among wheat. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. That's been going on since the ascension of Christ into heaven. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And went away. These are people who are against Christ. They're pra- pr- pr- they're 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 planting tares. They are antichrists. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And of course, he goes on and he explains the parable. I didn't read the whole thing, uh, but it says the one who sows the good seed, Jesus said, is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, and so forth. So uh, what we're reading here in First John was predicted by Christ, just as you have heard that any Christ is coming, that one world leader. And Jesus spoke of him in the Olivet Discourse. But now there are many antichrists who have appeared. From this we know we're in the last days. And so I think now we're in the last of the last days. But then he makes this incredible statement, and this is getting to my point that a true Christian cannot officially renounce Christ. It's not a sin. It's not a decision of the will a genuine believer would make. They went out from us, these who were false teachers, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. This is what we call perseverance. The Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints, And the doctrine of perseverance has many angles to it, but one aspect of the doctrine of perseverance is, one, you're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. That's why Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, where he's describing believers who are alive during the Great Tribulation period, 
which he tells us is an unparalleled time in human history, Matthew 24, 22. Never since the creation of the world has there ever been a time like it. Not even the noadic flood could compare to the disasters that are going to come on the human race during that time and the persecution that will come on God's people. Most believers during this time will be beheaded. Uh, There will be some that will flee as the Lord admonished them to, to a place of safety. So not everyone will be beheaded. But Jesus said, had not God interrupted that seven-year period, no one would survive it. That's how vicious it is. And, And yet it's in that context that he says, the one who will persevere to the end will be saved. Why? Because a true child of God will persevere. If you're living during the tribulation, they say, renounce Christ or we're going to cut off your head. What will a true believer say? Cut off my head because I'm not going to renounce Christ. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. So let me bring this back around to your question. It's possible to say, I believe that I am assured of my salvation on the basis of grace alone through faith alone, but I'm not eternally secure and, and still not come under Paul's anathema. It is impossible to mix the gospel of grace with human effort and to, be, and to say that you're preaching the true gospel. Look, there's a lot of pastors today that are lost. We have two Presbyterian churches in our town that are doing gay marriages, You tell me those pastors are saved, they're lost. They're totally lost. You tell me that uh, this uh, contemporary Christian artist who, uh, or Lauren Daigle, who produces all this Christian music, can come out and say there's nothing wrong with homosexuality and how can I be a judge of that, that she's saved? No, she's not saved. She has an unregenerate mind. You see, a natural mind, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't embrace them because they're spiritually discerned. But when you're born again, you have the mind of Christ. And when you read what God specifically says in the Scripture, then your spirit is going to say, yes, that's what God said. It's not a mystery. Uh, God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And so it's not a mystery when God writes through the book of Romans in the first chapter, and again, he he couldn't have said it any more plainly than this, that God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God calls it sin, and there's many texts that we could look at, and he warns us not to be deceived that people who live like this, whether they are drunkards, adulterers, fornicators, adulterers, gay people, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's what he says. But then the next verse gives a word of promise, and such were some of you, because God can save anyone. Just like the first testimony that came in from Tennessee, this brother who is now our brother, but he was a drunk all these years, but he's gotten saved. And when salvation comes into your life, you know, if I've stolen anything, I'll pay back four times as much, Zacchaeus said. Your life changes because you're a new creature. So we're living in a day of just a lot of confusion. And I would um, put the blame 
on the seeker-sensitive movement that has gotten away from the plain, simple exposition of the Word of God, and it's created all kinds of delusion in our day and false doctrine in phony Christians, and it's, it's sad. Anyway, appreciate that call, that question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. And don't forget, if you uh, did want to listen to this program again or you missed it by chance, uh, check us out at wagp.net and go to the archives uh, section for the Bible line. And uh, also, we are going to go back to that question. There was a second part from uh, Matthew in Oak Ridge and also Chris in Decorah, Iowa, uh, they wanted to know what resources you recommend to help along in discipleship and learning how to read and study the Bible. Uh, this individual has been reading the Ryrie Study Bible and the New King James and NIV translations. Would like to know what you recommend. I know it's the NASB, but uh, Chris and Decora would like to know which publication, I guess which year uh, yeah, yeah. of the NASB you recommend. Well, um, the older you get, the more uh, wooden it can be. So the American Standard Version, the ASV, came out in 1901. And so that was the first time. Prior to that, there was a little bit of history, which, by the way, if you're interested in study, I have a course on bibliology if you want to study this. And I go through the history of the various English translations, and I think it's section six of that course. If you take the whole course, you'll, you'll learn really how we got our Bible. And we deal with terms that are really important to understand because now you can have a a person who says, I believe in the inspiration of the Scripture, but they mean something totally different. Or they can even use the term like cooperative Baptists are now doing, that they believe in biblical inerrancy, but they don't. There are actually 10 views on inspiration and inerrancy, but there's only one view that matters, and it's the view that's revealed in Scripture. So you have pastors today who say, well, the Bible's inspired in parts. It's inspired in spots, and so you have to be inspired to spot the spots. And you become the judge of the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to judge you. 1901, the ASV came out. It was updated in the 50s, again in the 70s, and then for a long time, uh, between the early 70s and then 1998, they did the most recent update where you have the new New American Standard. But it turned into the um, um, New American Standard in the 1950s when they did an upgraded translation. And then it was done again in the 70s and most recently in the 90s. Um, it is, there are different kinds of um, approaches to understanding the Bible. There's a formal equivalent approach that tends to it emphasizes the fidelity to what we call the lexical and grammatical structures that are found in the New Testament, whereas a dynamic equivalent tends to employ a more natural rendering with less literal accuracy. So the formal equivalent basically goes as close as you can word for word for word. Now, if you took the, say, Greek New Testament, and you translated it directly into English, the sentence structure wouldn't make a lot of sense to you. It would be very difficult to understand because the way Greek structure word order is very different than the way we do, say, in the Western mind. And so the verb, for instance, can be the very first word of the sentence um, where we usually have subject, uh, verb, um, object, say, in typical English structure. So sometimes word order itself is just very, very different. 
So in any kind of a uh, translation where you're going, say, from the original language to the receptor language, in our case, English, then um, there's some uh, interpretive structural changes that are made. Okay, I just opened up my Greek New Testament to John 3.16. This may not be the best example because it's pretty close to the way it reads in the English text, but not entirely. Uh, It reads, Gar ha theos hutos egesain ton kusimain. So for God, uh, of him, uh, loved uh, the world in order that didome he gave. And then it's interesting, aha magane, uh, his uniquely begotten of son. So it's, it's, a little, it's a little wooden, it's a little awkward. Um, so we smooth it out into English a little bit. Uh, and so in a formal equivalent, you try to do that without making much interpretation. Sometimes you have to add a word in English, and in the New American Standard, they faithfully do that by putting words in italics just to make it read into normal English. Uh, so italicized words in the Bible realm are not words that are being emphasized but they are words that are inserted by the translator, and that this has been going on for several hundred years. But now italicized words are usually words that are you know, being set apart usually for emphasis, but not in uh, biblical translations. Italicized words are words that are not in the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, but they're added by the translator. So let's take a couple of examples. The New American Standard and the King James had two goals when they translated the Scriptures into the English tongue. One was readability, and the other was literalness. The New American Standard and the King James put literalness first and readability second, where, say, the NIV, that's not a formal equivalent. It's a dynamic equivalent. They put uh, readability first and literalness second. And now you have the new New NIV that came out in Uh, and paper in 2011, and it's not a really faithful translation anymore. Uh, They were trying to be politically correct, didn't want some things to sound too masculine. So, for instance, they took some singular pronouns where it says he, well, that's too masculine, and they changed it to they. And they took what's called the TNIV, which was kind of a gender-neutral Bible, and the NIV, and they bled the two translations together. And in a number of passages, which I cover very carefully in my bibliology course, they change the actual meaning of what God said. That's dangerous, and that's taking liberty that no one should ever take. And I wouldn't want to meet God having done that as a translator, because there are many people who, you know, depend on a translation team to produce a Bible that's readable because they don't know Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, So with that said, sometimes I will read the NAS 78 translation. Very rarely ever read the 1901 translation, but sometimes I do because I'm showing, say, the the history of a word and how it changes. And when I do that, I note it in the sermon. I'll say, it's kind of interesting. Like, for instance, uh, the Christmas story, uh, Luke chapter 2, that would be a good example let me just turn there for a second. Uh, Luke chapter 2, since it's this season of the 
uh, of the year, and this is a day in December if you're listening. Maybe you're listening to this rebroadcast in July. I don't know. But um, we're, we're told uh, in Luke, the second chapter, about the Christmas story, how Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in lineage, uh, the house and family of David, lineage could be another way to render it, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, the King James says betrothed to him, and the American Standard Version of 1901 says betrothed to him. Now, honestly, I have no idea why the translation team in the 70s changed it to engaged. I can speculate, but I've never met anyone from the translation board. They're all dead now um, in in the 1998 update, they retained that word engaged. The, the modifications in the 1998 uh, update and the New American Standard were very, very small. And again, just grammatical issues to reflect uh, proper English structure in the day that we live in. But the word is betrothed, and it's the same Greek word that's used in Matthew 1 that is translated betrothed. Why they went with engaged, I can guess. They think, well, Luke's audience is Gentile. They didn't really understand betrothed. They understood maybe the concept of engagement. But the fact is, is Luke used the term betrothed, and that's an important word. Uh, So sometimes, like if I were preaching this Christmas, this text, and I might, I don't know, um, I would probably relate back to the ASV translation and explain the significance of the word betrothed and how that is different from engagement in our 21st century culture. So with that all said, I do think the New American Standard is one of the finest translations that is available today in the English tongue in terms of preciseness. Very, very difficult to beat. A lot of uh, evangelicals are now using the ESV, the English Standard Version. Virtually all those who are doing that came out of the NIV, And most of the real purists who preached the Word of God verse by verse never used the NIV because they saw it as deficient in terms of the preciseness of the text. And if you're teaching verse by verse by verse and word by word by word, and you're preparing like that, you're going to go with the NAS as the foundational text. And that's why virtually all the expository preachers in this country have used the NASB whether it's Erwin Lutzer, who you will hear on the station, or David Jeremiah, or though Chuck Swindoll is now using the, the New Living, uh, you know, in his 80s. Um, so, but most of the sermons that you hear on the radio were done 30 years, 20, 10 years ago. But more recently, I was in China with one of his staff members, and he told me, you got to be kidding me. He said, yeah, I don't know. Bill Bright did the same thing at the end of his life, but... Uh, but I didn't know. I, Bill Bright was never an expositor, but he was a great man of God. But it surprised me that Chuck Swindoll made that decision. But the NASB is very difficult to to beat. But the ESV was adopted by a lot of guys who were using the NIV. But they weren't real expository preachers, most of them. I don't want to broad brush them all, but most of them were not. And that's why they were using the NIV. And again, you know, there's a lot of uh, decisions that translation team made in the old NIV, uh, that, and usually when I reference the NIV, I'll say NIV 84, 
because uh, I, I don't really want to push the NIV 2011 because I, I, I feel like they, they've made some decisions that were not God-honoring. Um, so anyway, I hope that helps. And finally, to close out Matthew's question, would you recommend something like maybe uh, a commentary, the BKC, to help him with his studies? Well, number one, since he's a brand-new Christian, I would encourage you for the next 30 weeks to work through the Back to Basics series. That's going to be a huge help to you. By the way, the Ryrie Study Bible is also available in the NASB, the New American Standard. New King James is good, um, but uh, you can get it in the NASB if that will help you. But I would definitely do the uh, Back to Basics series. It would be helpful to get something like the BKC. The BKC that Rick just referenced stands for the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And it was done in the 1980s, and again, they use the NIV, but what you find, which is really interesting as you read the BKC, it was done by Dallas Seminary, uh, is all the way through, you can barely turn a page in the NIV where they'll say, well, the New American Standard reads this way, and this is more literal and helpful. And they'll often... I don't want to say criticize, but they deal with the difference between a dynamic and a formal equivalent, and they'll always go with the formal equivalent because in the dynamic, you're, you're just communicating more thoughts rather than word for words, and you miss a lot of the essence. But the BKC is uh, in two volumes. There's an Old and a New Testament, and since it's been around for so long, you could go to a website that's called half.com, and Rick, why don't you bring that up for a second, half.com, and see what you find. And it's the used book side of eBay, and just type in Bible Knowledge Commentary. And if you were to do that, you could buy it used. And um, what are some of the prices they're selling for it oh, used wow. in, in a hardback? Which you told me this about 10 years ago, yeah. $11.44 Okay, so there the you go. Testament. There's 1144 Now, if you buy that thing new, it's going to be like 90 bucks. Yeah. So it's been around for a long time, and that would be a good single um, volume Old Testament, New Testament resource. Now, obviously, in a single volume resource you're going to be very limited in terms of the commentary you get. But the good thing about the BKC, which is why I recommend it, is, number one, it's done by conservative scholars. It was done by conservative Bible-believing Christians at Dallas Seminary and, uh, who taught there in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, most of them are all dead now. Uh, but they don't deal with the obvious. You know, anybody, you know, when you, you can pick up some of these commentaries and say, well, anybody can see that. That's pretty clear. Um, but they tend to deal with the more difficult sections that aren't so clear that some of the cultural or historical or grammatical context would open up for you. So that's why it's useful. And at the end of each book of the Bible, like if you went to the end of Romans, they'll have a bibliography of maybe 20 works, and they are good commentaries that you could buy. Now, you know, Romans might be, say, 70 pages in the BKC, but I have one six-volume commentary by one author on the book of Romans. So, you know, again, 60 pages can turn into a commentary of several hundred pages. I have two commentaries on the Gospel of Luke that they're both about 900 pages each to cover just the Gospel of Luke. 
again, you're talking about incredible detail, but you will find some of those references to good, healthy commentaries in the back. And again, you know, because this was printed in the 80s, you could go to half.com and buy a lot of these books for a song um, and pay very, very little for it. All right. And then the second part of Chris from Decorah, Iowa's question was, have you ever heard of Kent Hovind? And if so, what do you think of his work? Well, Kent Hovind is a pretty controversial guy. Um, he is, a, you know, he's, he's a, most people would classify him as a fundamental Christian. Uh, and sometimes people make a distinction between an evangelical and a, and a fundamentalist. But what makes him kind of a debatable, uh, somewhat controversial guy is his view on creation. Now, he's going to totally shout against, um, you know, evolution. But he's kind of come up with his own view of how the creation account took place. And it's called the Hovine Theory, as it's often referred to. So um, what he ends up doing, in my opinion, is he discredits uh, conservative evangelicals like Ken Ham and many others who argue for a literal interpretation of Genesis that the creation took place just like God said it did. But he comes up with some really wacko reasons for defending his like in the theory of dinosaurs and humans, which, of course, the Bible teaches they coexisted at one time. Um, you know, he expands, um, you know, he, he comes up with a, a view that's really weird. Um, he comes up with a weird view in the flood story. And I, I, I could, again, tear it apart here for the next hour. But the fact that guys like Ken Ham and Jonathan Sephardi and Carl Whelan and other conservative creationists who believe in a young earth discredit him and they do so rightly because he ends up giving guys like them a black eye where some of the things he's saying just aren't true in terms of actual science and that's not good you don't you don't want to be stupid you don't want to advocate that the um you know that the earth is in the center of the universe and all the planets rotate around the earth which was a popular view at one time in christendom uh, that's just bad science, and you end up discrediting other things you might teach because people say, well, how can I trust this guy? I mean, he's not even making sense in some areas. And so, again, I'm glad that he believes in creationism, but the Hovind theory, and I'm sure you could Google it and you could read all about it, it's just weird, and it's not faithful to the text. Um, now, science is not the final obviously, authority, the Bible is. And if God says one thing that is definitively contradictory to science, then I go with what God says. But um, lay that aside, we, we need to balance all these truths. Well, my a perfectly good hour just evaporated from us once again. A lot of questions we didn't even get to, but you can email us with your question, TBL. For the Bible line at WAGP.net. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. Mm-hmm.